Welcome back, friends, to a special um, slash bonus slash, I'll say, emergency episode of Racially Speaking. Um, We say emergency because I feel like it's just fair to call the state of why we're here um, an emergency. I think we should get be okay with saying that right now. Um, I don't know if enough people have been saying that leading up to this past weekend, but it feels like a state of emergency for a lot of reasons. Um, as you just heard, it's a cold open today. We just, we skipped music, pleasantries largely, as um, I'm not feeling super in the mood for pleasantries and um, getting pumped up for anything. Um, but anyway, um, I'm David, as you know, joined um, per usual by John Mark Walker, and we are have the privilege of being joined by our good friend, former, a um, couple times now, um, guest, our friend Debbie Carlier. So, guys, thank you for, for doing this. Yeah, happy to be here, as always. I'm glad Debbie, Debbie's here with us, too. Me, too. I'm glad to have you, too, to process this. It's always therapeutic. Yes, uh, we're, we're so happy you could join us on short notice. Um, um, yeah, let's let's jump in. Um, we are here, as I kind of alluded to, to discuss largely this past week um, and largely this past weekend going on in our country. Um, we're talking about several, and I feel like it's almost an injustice not to name so many other things, but we'll focus on, I think, three ish unless um, we end up being passionate about discussing something else that has gone over my head but there were three mass shootings over the last week one of which was in Dallas I think everyone by now knows about what happened in Buffalo and then on Sunday there was a shooting in um, Orange County California at a local church so I wanted to do everyone a um, service and do our best to summarize what's happened in those three and then kind of discuss discuss where we're at. Does that sound okay, you guys? Sounds good. Yep. So um, I wrote a lot of this stuff down so I don't skip over too many details. So Dallas, as I mentioned, um, Dallas, Texas was Wednesday the 11th. Seven people were targeted at a salon, um, three injured, and it looks like now that um, some time has gone by, there are going to be the four other charges for the four people that were not harmed. So three people injured, no one thankfully um, killed at a salon, um, all uh, seven Asian people, uh, people of Asian descent targeted there. Um, That's bare bones what happened there. And we'll come back and unpack these. Buffalo, May 14th, um, at a Topps Friendly Market store, um, grocery grocery store um, type area. Ten killed, three injured, um, 11 of of which were all um, black. And then Sunday, Sunday morning, I believe, um, we had Orange County, one dead, five injured, um, at a Taiwanese Presbyterian church um, mm-hmm. Sunday morning. So, yeah. bare bones, a lot of details, but back to back, 
to back. Um, all three of these shootings happening, all racially motivated, different reasons and layers behind all three. But a very, very heavy string of events just in a week span without even touching on other events um, over the past one to two to three, five years plus of patterns like this happening. Um, and Debbie and John Mark, we've already discussed this. I, I'd like to start, if you're willing, John Mark, um, Buffalo, um, not just because of the number, but that maybe even because of the number anyway, um, that was the biggest one by number and by news. And I think includes the most details. And I feel like that's a good launching point, but, um, I'd like to start and pass it off to you a little bit right here, John Mark, and hear how you're feeling and just some initial thoughts on what happened up there. Yeah. Um, thanks for asking. I appreciate that. It feels heavy. I feel burdened, um, sad. When it first happened, when I first heard about it, um, it was, um, what was it, Saturday night? Saturday night, yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's I went when to bed. It broke. Yeah, when the news broke, I went to, I, I, right before bed, I went to bed. I didn't even talk to my wife about it. Um, just because I needed to go to sleep, I needed to rest. Um, it feels all too common at this point. And um, not that I am numb to it, uh, it just feels like a burden that um, I need to carry and, and unfortunately expect to happen again. So um, I was able to go to bed that night and then wake up, you know, refreshed and, and to think about it. And um, yeah, so I'm burdened. It's heavy. It's hard. Um, frustrated. Uh, and right now, what I really want to do is just read the names of those that died. Um, yeah. Um, so I'm just going to read them. Um, Aaron Salter, 55. Ruth Whitfield, 86. Pearlie Young, 77. Catherine Massey, 72. Deacon Hayward Patterson, 67. Celestine Cheney, 65. Roberta A. Drury, 32. Margus D. Morrison, 52. Andre McNeil, 53. Geraldine Talley, 62. And then those that were injured, Zaire Goodman, 20. Um, those are the names of the black people that were injured and, and died in the shooting. And I just wanted to remember them by name because uh, it helps us remember that they were people. Um, and I believe people made in the image of God, that their lives were valuable. Um, and uh, that their lives were not seen as valuable by the man who did the shooting and killed them and murdered them um, because of uh, racism, because of a present racism that's among us and infesting our societies and because of a system of historic racism. Um, and so I just want to honor them by saying their names. So uh, one of, one of um, one 
and saying that, that whenever this happens is I feel some kind of way. And it sums up all of the emotions that I'm feeling in this moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. Appreciate you doing that. Yeah. I mean, I want to hear how you guys are feeling and processing this too. So uh, what are your thoughts, uh, Debbie or David? Um, I think that I was, I actually found out about it through Paul, about the Buffalo shooting. And um, Paul was just mentioning, hey, I think there's a shooting going on. I think he probably found out it was caught the news as it was unfolding or coming out. And I, I'll admit in the beginning, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready to hear more. Um, but then as we got more details, oh, um, I, I think I felt a little bit numb. <laughs> mm. It's like, you don't, I didn't feel like I had the space and time to really deal with it at that mo precise moment. Um, but later on, I started to read more details and then I started to get a little more angry. I think, you know, I guess I'm just going through motions like I can't get numb and then I get angry and then I get really sad. Mm. Um, and I also started to think of my uh, black friends and just didn't know what I could do. Was almost afraid to reach out because I was thinking they may not be ready to really say anything. But of course, the next day we had actually our church um, worship time and, and Dave and I go to the same mm -hmm. church. Yeah. And um, when I saw, immediately saw one friend, I asked her how she felt. And it's interesting, she felt similarly just numb and and actually for her she was still feeling numb but then um i just thought you know just ask it gave her the opportunity to share how she was processing um and one thing she shared with me that really you know kind of captures the some of the frustration is that like when the shooter um, came out um, with his gun, the law enforcement people did not, you know, shoot him right away or they actually talked him down mm -hmm. and, and he was about to shoot himself, right? Mm -hmm. uh, under the chin. And um, they talked him out of doing that and he surrendered his gun. Um, but mm. the sad thing for my friend, and she articulated this, is that like I know that if it was had been a black shooter, he he would have been dead automatically. Mm. And so it's just a reminder of how just how insignificant black lives are mm -hmm. to people. It's like you don't. She's like, well, it's it can be just a black person be sitting in traffic, minding their own business, just waiting at the traffic light and they could be shot, you know, for no reason. But when there's a white shooter, every bit law enforcement can take the time to talk him down. So mm -hmm. there's just a lot of different emotions, I guess. And 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Just want to take yeah. a second to pause and say, like, I can even tell by looking and everyone's not going to be seeing the video, but in your guys' eyes that we are, we do absolutely have a feeling of collective numbness, I think. Um, I can see that in body language, um, even as you're sharing, John Mark. And I think I just want to even engage with our listeners. The, some of you listening might not, and rightfully so, might really not know how to reach out to your friends of color. And that's, that's okay um, that, it's, that you don't know what to do because we don't really know what to do either or how to engage with that dynamic, you know, mm -hmm. engaging, wanting to be cared for, but wanting to be left alone. I don't have advice on that at this point. Maybe I will by the end. But I think, you know, Debbie and John Mark, you'll agree where we agreed to do this. Yeah. Because I think this is a good way that we, we all collectively feel like is good for the three of us, but mm. are willing to let people in to listen to this conversation. And, it you know, we're 15 so minutes in and... I don't know. I I encourage everyone listening not to be just waiting, waiting, waiting to just hear action steps or to hear like, okay, mm -hmm. what can I hear to make me feel better or to know exactly what to do? Because we might not get there. This is what you should do is listen because this is what it looks like to process mm -hmm. in a raw way um, shortly after all these things have, have taken place. Um, so I I just wanted... To put put this put that out there, um, if that's okay. Yeah. Okay, and so with with that said, um, Debbie, you brought up a uh, interesting point that we didn't want to get to by talking about how um, the shooter in Buffalo was, you know, arrested and apprehended, unscathed, even negotiated with. Um, talked out of taking his own life, which is great, um, but talked, talked out of doing that, but was armed still, yeah. you know, when police arrived. And, you know, talking to, to your friend, mentioning that, um, comparing that to what happens to unarmed black men and women regularly seemingly at the hands of the police um just comparing that um statistic like what can we unpack that a little bit um because i i want to just be clear that we're not just looking for things to be bent out of shape shape about like that is a real reality mm. that causes us to pause and compare to things that have led up to led up to this yeah. What else comes to mind, even specifically, John Mark or Debbie, when understanding um, that the police were able to calmly negotiate, arrest this man armed with, you know, um, was it AR-15? I can't remember what type of gun, but uh, after murdering mm -hmm. 10 people. Well, I mean, 
it just shows that the law enforcement don't view white people as dangerous, even if they're holding a gun and just shot, mm. you know, a whole bunch of people. It, and you know that yeah. a black person can be unarmed and be considered unsafe. And so I, that's kind of yeah. changed. <laughs> I don't know. And to be clear, you're not just, just saying that. That's literally been the defense and rationalization by police officers to justify taking the life of a black man or woman. I was threatened. Mm -hmm. They looked dangerous. They had a hoodie on. They were in a white, wealthy neighborhood. Maybe you wouldn't say that directly, but that's been the case when they were holding a bag of Skittles. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, maybe even committing a crime, but unarmed. Yeah. Or as young yeah. as 14, 12, yeah. um, holding a toy gun. Um, it seems like, it seems like a, a black male who is adult size in America um, is scarier than a white male with um, an automatic gun. Um, it's more yeah. dangerous as if as if we have superpowers or something and are just violent out to get everybody. Um, and it, yeah, it seems like that seems to be the perception of police officers in general. And then I think also the general public of, of black men. Yeah. Um, it makes me think of Dylan Roof, uh, who was yeah. the uh, the murderer in the who shot up Emanuel AME Church, who killed um, I think it was nine people he killed there. Um, but it's reported that he got Burger King after that, that the police officer bought him Burger King on yeah. the way to jail. Because he and was it's hungry. Just, it just seems, I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand, uh, the, the, the treatment, the difference in treatment between black men who are arrested and then these two white young men who, um, how they were handled, how they've been arrested. Um, yeah. Um, Dylan Roof and then. Also, um, Kyle Rittenhouse came to mind, mm-hmm. arrested mm-hmm. peacefully while armed after killing two people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it shows me that but the system of our policing system at Broad, and these are all different local police systems, but in general, yeah. um, we know how to arrest people peacefully. So why, why can't that be extended to black people yeah. and brown people? Right? Yeah. And it sheds light on a reality that things that have been put forward by police departments are not, are not the issue specifically training or more money. Mm-hmm. I've seen so many, you know, local governments just say, Oh, we need more police. They need better, better training. And this, it's just when stuff like this is so inconsistent and, um, uh, hypocritical by nature. I think it shows that 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 is that's literally not the issue. Um, yeah, because it seems like their training is fine when right. apprehending a white suspect for right. the for the most part, and for some reason they must not have had good enough training. Yeah, in circumstances yeah. with men and women of color, largely black. Yeah. Um, Black people. 
the administering of the training, the correct training. It's choosing when to use the correct training. Um, yeah. It's definitely racially biased. <laughs> so yeah, that's well said. Um, yeah. Um, even more with Buffalo, I, I jotted down a few things that I had read from multiple sources and accounts. Um, that and we don't have to go down a long road with each one of these, but there are things that stuck out to me that have that are on theme for things that I have seen in the past. And one of them was just just I think a lot of people probably know this by now, but how premeditated all of this was. Um yeah. by by this guy. Um it was planned for months and even weeks and really ramped up within the last weeks, obviously. But um as they've looked through his correspondence through um everything from private chat rooms on Twitch and or Discord. I think it was both. Um, John Mark Moore, that, that's more your wheelhouse, but I don't want to throw somebody under the bus that shouldn't be, but I think it was it was both. How he communicated and even wrote out plans to commit this act of terror um, mm -hmm. and got people to collaborate and get almost like proofread it for him. Sounds like, so there's that. Mm -hmm. um, he's looked, he's, it's shown that he has, you know, searched out a place um, that had a large, that had a zip code um, that included predominantly black population mm. and then yeah. specifically had searched um, busy times for the supermarket where this took place. Um, and th this stuck out to me was said by locals to have had been showing up there regularly, kind of sticking out like a sore thumb, weirding people out um, mm. as the only white guy around, just observing and literally just scouting out like it was watching film for a sporting event, like mm. scouting the area that he was going to do this at. Mm. Um, and I want to compare that with, the way we treat black people in predominantly white spaces. Um, mm. I had a conversation with an acquaintance recently who, and this is, you know, real, it's not a story I read, it's somebody I, I know, um, who I had had a conversation with a year prior, says they go, they often jog to work and no, uh, as a black man, um, but specifically in there, it's, it's dark um, early when he runs and avoids a certain area because he just knows that he will probably not um, get good looks and runs the risk of having the police called on him or worse. And we know what worse could be. Mm. And even hearing that and being, you know, even having the beliefs I have and awareness I have, I become kind of numb to hearing that kind of stuff. Of like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Smart, that's smart, you know, just go go a different way and um, go on with your life. And, uh, you know, a year later, he, um, I was in a conversation with him and said, yeah, well, I just figured, you know, okay, what what's the harm? I'll give it a go. Decides to go through that shortcut that he said he avoids all the time. Like clockwork, encounters a, a local in that area immediately stops him, questions him, demands that, tell him his name, all this stuff. 
Mm. You know, my friend, um, I think gave him some choice words, moves on, keeps going, is down to tie, tie, tie his shoe. Police car pulls over. Luckily, um, very understanding police officer, just, you know, say, hey, you know, what's your name? And then my friend politely told him, well, I obviously know why you're here. I know exactly what happened. And, you know, the police officer laughed it off. It's like, yeah, don't let idiots like that person, you know, get you down, which best case scenario, you know, that was a little lighthearted probably, but best case scenario. So anyway, just mm-hmm. wanted to say that, that it's not just, these aren't just things we're reading about and coming here to talk about. It's like, this is real life things that have happened or are, are happening, excuse me. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I want I, I thought, thought about that when reading about some of the premeditative steps this guy had taken. Um, and he was also taken for mental health evaluation in high school because he had made threats to carry out a shooting at the high, at a, at a school. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that mm-hmm. could open up another conversation, but mental health evaluation was released and so forth. I'm not going to pretend to know every step that should be taken in that, like, um, cause that's, you know, that's not my wheelhouse. Um, good to see he was at least taken in, um, I'd say for, for an evaluation. Mm-hmm. Interesting being released, um, in hindsight, you know, hindsight's 2020. I'm not going to blame all those individuals for releasing or anything, but I will say because it was stuff I read about it, because it was not a involuntary evaluation because of not strict enough gun laws, it didn't prevent mm-hmm. it from purchasing guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which I think that's where the overlap is to the gun, the gun element here. Um, yeah. Whether or not it was released or not, gun laws still did not prohibit him from purchasing a gun. Um, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I was just talking, chatting with John Mark earlier and um, <laughs> I was really impressed that he had the, all the victims' names and, and, and bothered to check. And I was saying yeah. that I felt, I didn't even bother to do that for any of the incidents that happened this past week. I was just more fixated on I guess I was feeling a bit helpless and hopeless about yeah. racism changing, <laughs> at least in the, at this moment, just that's how I feel emotionally. Um, but I was, you know, trying to think what's the practical thing we can do. And of course the guns, the immediate thought to my mind is we just, we need to collect all the guns in America and just throw mm-hmm. them out because we can't, control people <laughs> um, people yeah. who are racist and have access to guns are just going to do this and you know precious lives are going to be at stake um, and so I don't know yeah those this this issue of course it also since you know I was here for April 16th I know what can happen to you know it just that came to mind immediately too. In Blacksburg, just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's Virginia Tech shooting. Virginia Tech shooting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You were so you were there. You were a professor. Um, I was um, 
working on campus um, in very close to where the first shooting happened. And then, mm -hmm. um, but thinking, I didn't know that the first shooting had happened, um, but I could hear sirens. So I thought, well, they, because we had received no, um, you know, communicate about what was going on. I don't think people understood what was going on. It wasn't until later when Cho went to um, uh, Norris Hall and killed everybody that um, just the 32 people there mm -hmm. um, that wow. I started to get messages in my office to like shut the door. And we tried to secure the building and yeah. um, just went around the, floor that we had no administrative people around. So um, the uh, maintenance um, staff member and I just started to run around the building to tell graduate students to like pull down the blinds. And then we secured the building. And anyways, I had no idea that so many, there were so many victims until I left. They let us leave the building. And of course then wow. we learned, but wow. this, we haven't, the thing is, is I feel like we haven't talked about gun troll, at least locally, or maybe not even nationally, it seems to me, um, for the last couple of years, maybe we're too busy dealing with the pandemic. But mm. I feel like it's kind of, is that, the, I don't know if this is my imagination, but it's really, you know, I just feel like it, interest in, in gun control is kind of decreased. Yeah. I don't know why, yeah. but now this is really making me <laughs> don't, think. Don't we think that it's connected to the American way of viewing freedom? Mm. You know, do we not? Yeah. I, I mean, I think the pandemic might be one reason. Um, I, I was, yeah, I was, I was, I, I sense that too. I sense that the public opinion has shifted away from even talking about it. We were talking about so many other things and so many, so, so much division on so many other issues. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I mean, also just thinking back to the Virginia tech shooting uh, school shootings were relatively rare in the news, even back then, but now it's like, yeah, I expect there to be one, you know, this, you know, this next year, right. There was, one this last year there's just all the time this is happening so i don't know if we're just sat oversaturated and can't handle um we're numb to it we're numb to uh caring um it's it's like like you're saying if we could take all the guns away would that solve it um if we could uh thanos snap our finger and make all the guns turn into dust would that solve it and um I don't, I don't, I think then we would have staffings. I think then we'd have some other kind of violent extremism in schools and against people of color. And um, yeah, I, so I don't know. I think, I think gun control regulations is a way to handle it, to approach this. Um, it's frustrating that this guy fell through the cracks like that. Not surprising because we are very loose. I feel like we're loose on that. I, I, uh, I think that our rights are important. Um, I, I realize the Second Amendment is very important to people, the right to, to keep and bear arms. And um, But there is that one phrase in there that sticks out to me is it, uh, the right to a well-regulated militia, right? And so I think that well-regulation, what does that mean? And when I, when I think about school shootings, I think about 
um, Buffalo shooting, the, the church um, that just happened, that doesn't seem well regulated to me, that people can so easily get these guns and then go and, and take the lives of um, people going about their peaceful days, right? Um, and it just seems like we're failing somewhere where we think that that is well regulated. That is what the right should look like. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I, I, we seem to not be able to responsibly handle our guns as a nation overall. Yes. And, and I think we need to do something about that. I'm not advocating for taking them all away, but we certainly need to step up more. I think we um, we have a responsibility and we're failing it. Yeah. 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 Interestingly, I remember reading somewhere that Australia, I don't know when this happened. Somebody can look it up later, but I don't know, a number of years ago, they saw a rise in mass shootings and they just, they just, you know, they just one day decided, okay, we're going to take a make um, owning, I think it's semi-automatic weapons or AK-47s, I can't, a category of, mm-hmm. of um, guns illegal. And they just went around the country and collected all of them. Wow. And it, people willingly gave them for the most part, because I think they had experienced so much suffering or, and, yeah. They're different, I, obviously, because I don't think I'm not sure this could ever happen. I wish this could I'm happen. Not sure either. This is my dream. Yeah. <laughs> we have such a wild west country, right? I mean, we we um, we idolize some of that wild west mentality of you know go into a saloon and shoot them up. We make movies about it. We, yeah. we think that's the way that men should be. So that's ingrained in our American culture. I don't think that we can ever change it. I mean, I ever think about. Well, I always got to talk about Hamilton, right? Where they, where they talk about the duels, yeah. um, the 10 dual commandments. Like it was a, it was a shoot each other uh, culture. And I don't think we've grown beyond that. So um, I too wish that we could get to a point where Australia is and says, right, everybody's going to willingly give up their guns. But I really don't think that that is in our nature as a nation. What a great, a- what a great connection to Hamilton there. Well, I, I, I think great's a good uh, right word, but. Yeah, so many more thoughts on this. Let's let's take a quick break and pick right back up with um with this topic. As you continue to listen to the episode, I wanted to take a second just to take a quick pause to encourage you to also take a quick pause if you need it. These are some really heavy topics. I mean, they are literally about life and death. And it's okay if you feel like you need to hit pause and to take a few minutes, take a few hours, take the rest of the day, take a couple of days, that's okay, and come back and listen to the rest of the episode at your own pace. Your emotional and mental health is far more important to us than the amount of listeners we get. With that said, whether you listen to the rest of the episode or not, the only thing we ask you to commit to is being part of the solution to the things we are talking about whatever that might look like. Now, if you're ready to jump back in, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I echo everything, you know, you guys just said. 
I think, you know, like you guys said, um, would just see a slew of other problems that would arise and can only, can just see the reaction if we were to do something like, like in Australia did with, you know, taking away guns. And it's because of, you know, with that Hamilton connection, that American freedom, you know, is innate, is in and of itself a good thing, but has been twisted into this selfish thing that it was not, well, maybe it was meant to be that way, but shouldn't have been meant to be that way. Um, and I saw this on social media and people can say what they want about social media, but there's so much truth. I saw this earlier today in this and it said, you know, freedom isn't being able to have as many guns as you want. Freedom is being able to go get your groceries without fearing that you're going to be shot. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, sounds, uh, maybe playful or, you know, hyperbolic or something, but man, isn't that where it feels like we're at based on this past week? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a friend whose um, daughter just moved from Buffalo recently and she knows exactly where that place is. And just, you know, it's, you know, it makes it personal, but you know, her reaction is just how you would imagine is, well, now we can't even, so what? We can't even go to the grocery store now. What's the next place? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's just so many things wrapped up in it that it feels like I understand the helpless mentality of like, you know, even if we did X, Y, and Z, took away guns or made stricter gun laws, it's hard not to be so calloused right now. And it's hard because it's hard not to just foresee, well, then we'll just have another um, white supremacist rally or insurrection or some, that's just where my mind goes because it's so embedded in what America is. And it feels, it does in all fairness feel to people that are feeling helpless. It does feel like, well, there's nothing that can be done. Um, other than prayer, mm. which then mm-hmm. I know sometimes that's a triggering thing to hear because it feels like, well, prayer, yes, but we need action as well. And so it's just, um, yeah, it's, tough to get out of that circular loop for me um, with, some, with some of this stuff. Yeah. Do you guys agree? I'm assuming you do. I do. I do. Um, I do a little bit. It does, it does seem hopeless. In fact, I was leading a class on a book called Talking About Race by Isaac Adams, which I recommend. Um, I won't say much about it now, but uh, in, this, in this class, um, somebody asked me like, you know, is, do I have hope? Is there hope? And, and, um, and it was, someone was, was talking about how he doesn't think that racism is going to change. And I surprised, surprised myself, but I tend to agree that um, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think racism is something that will be cured um, from America that we can ever get to a point where uh, there are no more, uh, there's no more racism in America. So then it's like, well, is it, is it pointless? Like, why should we, why even have this conversation? Why are we on this podcast together? And I, and I think that just because we can't cure something that is broken in society doesn't mean we can't help people who are suffering from that. Right. right. And, and that we can't win people over to love others rather than hate others. And, and so I think it's just this, this um, continual, 
march against hatred that we are going to have to live in our lives as those yes. who love, right? And, and as Christians, we love God and God loves people. And so we love people too, right? Um, and so uh, we have this motivation to love people and um, we can't, we might not be able to ever do anything about guns, right? And our nation might be stuck forever with these uh, crazy uh, gun laws that are just open for anyone who wants to hurt anyone has. But um, my hope is that we can get people to start valuing the lives of everyone um, more than they value guns. And then talking about it with everyone in their communities, right? Talking about how much uh, a person's life is worth, how much an Asian person's life is worth, how much a black person's life is worth. And then hopefully these things will diminish as people begin to see a bigger yeah. picture of, of the value of people's lives. Um, I was I was talking to my wife before getting on the podcast and I was saying um, like Dylan Roof and uh, this this Buffalo shooter, they're not going to listen to me, right? Wherever they are, yeah, yeah they're they're not, they're going to see me and be like, oh, he's a black person. I'm not going to listen to him, right? They're going to shut me out because of racism. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of of white people in their lives who um, probably could have said something that would have affected their view of of black people in such a way that they wouldn't have gone and shot people, right? Yeah. So so what I want to do is I want to. I encourage those people who see the worth in, in black and brown people um, and who have the ear of people who might hate. Um, it's like my question is, is what can they say? What can you say um, to help those people move from a place where they will take a life because of racism to um, to a place where they value life? Yeah. So many thoughts. Debbie, um, feel like we're talking over you a little bit. Yeah. What do you got? Um, I guess that you means that we have to be willing to have conversations conversations with people that we may think are difficult. <laughs> you know, like mm. I I mean, so I mean, how else will a there's a person who really is struggling with seeing black and brown people as people with dignity um, and not valuing the sanctity of life here. Mm -hmm. um, it means that I have to get, I keep on thinking of um, Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. Just Mercy. Mm -hmm. You yeah. need to get proximal to the problem. <laughs> which is a big challenge, John Mark. <laughs> it's like, that means I need to be willing as a, especially as a believer that we're called to love people and love our enemies. Uh, I need to be willing to know people who are of different background, upbringing, uh, cultural values, um, and those who, you know, might are white supremacists too. I, I think I need to be willing if God brings that opportunity, opportunity into my life to, to start conversations with that person. And, mm, yeah. and as, I guess, how can you do that without gaining some type of trust as a friend? I don't know mm. if a person will be willing to talk to you. I do remember reading a story about, and I wish I could remember his name, but there was this one black gentleman who 
started a friendship with a Ku Klux Klan leader. Yeah, I heard that story too. Yeah, and yeah. while he was, you know, protesting and he just strikes up a conversation with this black gentleman talks, just started this conversation. They became good friends. And over time, mm-hmm. this guy left the Ku Klux Klan. He hung up his robes. I think he even gave his robes to the black man. Oh. Yeah, I think it was in Maryland. And I think he was a reporter. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, the stories are really interesting because they're incredible. They're so powerful. I wish that they... And Debbie, I texted you uh, when you asked me a question earlier in the week, and I said, I'm sorry that I sound like a broken record, but only I'm only going to bring that up because of what I'm about to say. Okay. <laughs> I hate when um, stories like that don't then move us farther mm-hmm. down the road, you know what I mean? They don't move the needle. They so mm-hmm. often stop with, see, we just need to have conversations at individual level, or we just need to forgive one another and move on. And oftentimes those stories are taken by people in power to then say, oh, this is what we need to do. Mm-hmm. But then that skirts around systemic change a lot of times. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think that that's a phenomenal story. I've heard that story too. Debbie, I'm not hating on you or anything. I just no, remember, I'm, I remember like, you know, 2015, Dylan yeah. Roof. And then, um, you know, like John Mark already alluded to with um, shooting in South Carolina at the church when people were just, gung-ho about promoting that the the victim's families forgave and hugged and mm-hmm. oh i remember hugged him. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's fantastic that's great but the way it was used is can be so problematic yes to change because then we're just consistently back here back here um yeah forgiveness i'm pro forgiveness i'm pro conversations obviously mm-hmm. um just really difficult when you know the we can't even get that sometimes because of how it's then, then used. Um, but yeah, obviously I'm very pro, <laughs> pro these kinds of conversations. And I would even add that I think a lot of, I think you brought this up, John Mark, but like we, we talk about, um, you know, privilege and power and it's, it can be, you know, we critique it a lot like white power and white privilege, but it can be used for so much good. I can think of a couple examples even from this past week that didn't even have to do with what we're talking about. But, um, one was, um, do you guys know who JJ Redick is retired NBA basketball player from the Roanoke area? He's a, um, he's white. Um, Debbie, I saw you shake your head. So he's a a white player. He played at a Duke university, pretty, really good player in the NBA retired. And now he's on ESPN and some shows. And, um, he was on show called first take, ESPN and there's Stephen A. Smith, who's prominent black voice on ESPN. Uh, Molly Quirum, who is um, the I forget the anchor, the mod, uh, I don't know her title, moderator. Um, and then there's a new guy, um, middle-aged white guy. His nickname I forget his real name is Mad Dog. Anyway, said something pretty insensitive along the lines of just shut up and dribble about some athletes. And JJ Redick got all this attention and I, I you can say what you want I, I don't think he I mean I know he's on TV but it sounded pretty like it was his gut instinct not super calculated by any means but is the one on that show that spoke up and took the time to like for five minutes just unpack like hey man this is why what you just said is 
extremely problematic. I thought did a fantastic job mm. Um, mm. calling out the tone, the posture, and the the ties to racist thinking that came with the comment. And he was very mm-hmm. clear. He's like, I'm not saying what you're saying is like overtly racist or that this issue is even purely about race, what you're saying, but to ignore, to ignore the connection that you're bringing up to people right now of how you just talked about um, those players is, is really unsettling for me and I, I don't appreciate it. And he's the white guy, the only other white guy on the set. And I'm like, man, that is a fantastic example of using your power, your privilege to mm. speak up for what's right on, you know, on a very big stage. The other two people, Stephen A being one of them, who's never short of words, um, mm-hmm. just got to sit there and watch. Um, I thought it was fantastic. And then the other one I sent this to you, John Mark, was the uh, the white Uber driver that's been passed around a lot mm-hmm. um, who kicked the people out of his car, or refused to keep driving to say, hey, you guys can get out, I'm fine. I don't because know she got in you and guys. said, oh, good, you're a white guy. Yeah, right? they got in and said, first, thank God you're a white guy, you speak English. And he said, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. And he was like, all right, I'm canceling your ride. Yeah, yeah that, that's deeply inappropriate. And they, you know, cursed him out, fought back. And he was like, hey, that's fine, get out. Um, yeah. Those are just two examples off, you know, off the top of my head from this week that I was like, that people don't realize those little things can be impactful in the right context. So I think, David, you bring up a, I, I'm glad you shared this because I, it reminded me of another Black friend that I talked to um, on Sunday. And I think basically he, I felt like that he was encouraging people with white privilege to stand up and speak yeah. up at the moment to mm. come alongside and speak up because right now the black community is hurting and it yeah. also they don't feel like they're in a place where their voice will matter in this situation. Like it, or just not, I mean, it matters, but you know, for him, it felt like I'm not going to have as much impact. I need my white brother here to stand up and say something. Um, so mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And not, I don't, um, John Mark, I, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I, I, not all black people may feel that way, right? Cause I don't know, I, I have some friends who, or I shouldn't say friends, um, colleagues that I know that seem to just want the black community to be the voice. But I have mm-hmm. other black friends who are like, no, like we need the white people to at some, sometimes their voice is very important when mm-hmm. they're, and I guess the question is in what situations, I, David, I like those examples that you gave. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a good, and, that's a good question. And, and, yeah, I think at different times, um, I think different people have different opinions, right? So uh, it depends on who you're talking to, but I also think it's appropriate to um, use your power to platform Black voices uh-huh. um, or to listen to already platformed Black voices when there is a space that Black people have set up to point to it and say, listen to these voices. But then also, like like I was saying earlier, there are spaces where I'm not, my voice isn't going to be heard. I'm not going to get to go to every Thanksgiving dinner, yeah. right? And have those conversations. Yeah. But but other white people with their relatives will have those voices or um, with, with their churches. And 
Um, so I think those times, especially when when you have a friend who um, is black or Asian, brown, whatever, who um, you're in a situation where they where their culture is being disparaged, you're hearing yeah. it, um, and they're not there. That's a moment you've got to speak up, right? You've got to say something to whatever is going on there. Yeah. And that moves this needle forward towards uh, towards greater racial justice, right? Um, I, was, I was thinking one, the, the question is, how do we care for people in, in the wake of the shooting at the Taiwanese church or the shooting at Buffalo? How do we care for um, Asian people? How do we care for Black people? How do we care for Taiwanese people uh, specifically? And um one thing, like a text message is nice, right? A text message that says, hey, I'm thinking of you that doesn't require a response. It goes, it means a lot. It, it travels, it goes a long way, right? Yeah. Um, if you're closer with them, maybe you can offer, say, hey, uh, in the text message, if you want to talk about this, you can. That That is good too, but not expecting a response. Yeah. It's, I think um, this, uh, it's like grief. When somebody is hurting, you, you grieve out, right? So the person who's closest to the event, who's most affected by it, um, you let them cry on your shoulder if you're less affected, and then you cry on somebody else's shoulder. Similar thing here, like uh, depending on how close you are to them, how close you are, uh, how much connection you have to whatever the event is, um, you think about that and you let the person who's closer grieve to you. So, and yeah. on their own terms, you listen on their own terms and grieve to you. Um, but the other thing, I, I'm thinking like, it's nice to get the text messages, but what I really want is for people to be as upset as I am yeah. over the loss of life. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, not that it was just, not that I have that connection because we're both black and like, I, it, it is a fear of mine that I could go and be shot by go shop at a black grocery store. Right. Um, but, but I just, I want people to value life and and value um, American citizens, right? Fellow citizens. Like this was a terrorist attack on American soil. If you are an American citizen, then you should demand for your government to do something about that so that this doesn't happen more often, right? Yes. And so um, I want to encourage people to look at the the platforms of the politicians that are running at state, local, federal government and see if they have something against uh, domestic terrorism, specifically white supremacist terrorism, um, if they're if they're planning to do anything about it, and if they don't, find out why, ask them why, investigate yeah. it, and demand that our politicians are addressing this because it's been going on. It is a part of our history from from the set from when America was founded to today. This is something that has been a part of us, and it's got to stop. We've got to address it at that level. The other thing um, is uh, is churches. Now I know it happened. Happened Saturday. It broke news broke Saturday. So a lot of pastors aren't connected, aren't going to be aware of it. Um, I'm sure some elder somewhere in your church was aware of it. But if you go to a church that didn't say anything or do anything about it after the year of 2021 that we had where racism was on everyone's tongues after that year, if they didn't still didn't say anything about it on Sunday, then you got to ask them questions. Why? Why are we not talking about it? Why aren't we addressing it? Um, especially if your church is is uh, predominantly white. Um, if your church yeah. is, is black, I bet it was talked about. So I'm going to set that aside. But um, if yeah. your church is predominantly white, ask why. And then another thing is ask if there is a theological stance on race, if your church mm -hmm. has a theological stance on race. And, and respectfully go to your pastor and ask them if they have that. If they don't have that, ask them why, right? Um, I think those are some things that people can do practically to 
begin to draw out, do we actually care and value the lives of black and brown people in our country? Yeah. Yeah, man, so many thoughts. Um, even the examples I gave with like a JJ Redick or that Uber driver and then things you just summed up, I'd say that to be like when stuff like this happens being checked on or stuff like that, it's most helpful when it, and there's always got to be a first time, but it's most helpful when it's just not a surprise by who it is or how they're talking. It doesn't even have to be a big text. It's just like, it means the most from people that I know are engaged already Mm -hmm. with me. Absolutely. Like it shouldn't be a surprise. Like it feels the best one from people. It's like, yeah, you know, I I know, you know, thanks for checking. I'm good. And we don't get to say much. Like I I know, you know, um, again, that doesn't, I'm not saying that to say like, if you've never texted one of us or something, then too late, like, no, there's always gotta be first time, but I'm saying like what stuck out to me, even about, um, these are much more lighthearted, but like, a JJ Redick or that Uber driver is not what they did. It's that how prepared they were to do what they did. No deer in the headlights. Yeah. No okay. fumbling through how to convey. It's like, they were just like, this is objectively wrong. I'm going to speak up about it now and mm-hmm. not go, you know, you know, we're navigating a learning curve versus like ignorance, I think sometimes. So it's like, there's two things, like there's grace to move slow. If you're, trying you know what I mean but it's hard to like be okay with ignorance I'll just like say that at this point so like I see and you even brought up church like I see the word in Christian circles like lament brought up at a time like this mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. time I don't know you two are both Christians as well I don't know if you would agree but I, I find myself wondering what people think that means lately because when something like this happens when I see lamenting be the first reaction and then verses like Psalms commonly thrown out there about lamenting together, mm-hmm. like saying like how long are Lord the, to me. And I don't, I, I truly I'm asking cause I'm processing this in real time. It seems like a interesting time to have it be a collective thing stance of like saying like how long are Lord when like, I, I would almost rather if, they haven't been doing a good job, depending who's saying it, speaking about it, that a lament of ignorance or lament of not engaging well would be yeah. where they start first. Yeah. A lot of times mm-hmm. of let me yeah. lament, not that I'm a terrible person, we're a terrible church, but I want there to be a lamenting of we didn't do this well, right? Like if, for example, like if a church didn't, say something or an organization didn't say something on Sunday or Saturday about what's been going on. You only know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But I think it's appropriate to grieve or lament why that, that that's a reality that you didn't, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I've been kind of thinking about that a little bit and unpacking that in my mind of like, it it's tough for me to hear the lamenting, the collective lamenting when it hasn't been a, feeling of solidarity until that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well said. We need to lament our failures yeah. in this area, our failures to address the brokenness, the burdens, the racism, the sin. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's well said. Yeah. Lament and then be prepared for the next time. I mean, prepared for when there's a teachable moment for, mm-hmm. and shepherd your congregation through things like this. I, mm-hmm. And maybe 
I'm also concerned about churches engaging with their congregation about where they're getting their information about, because yeah. all that white replacement theory that, yeah, I don't know, can churches somehow get involved with this or not? I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah that's a good question. So I reached out um, on social media, did not get many responses, but I wanted to take a shot and that, and you know, that's, that's fine. Um, I'm pulling it up real quick um, if I can. Um, but one of the questions really that I got, one of the only questions was from um, somebody, it doesn't really matter who it is, was, oh, I might have disappeared. I'm new to doing this. I'll paraphrase it. It was specifically about um, Tucker Carlson, um, yeah. Fox News anchor, taking yeah. a lot of criticism right now. I think probably rightfully so. I don't know all the details, but um, prominent one of the most prominent voices in news on Fox News is said to have upwards of four or five hundred times. I can't think of the word um, endorsed replacement theory yeah. or white replacement theory through how he speaks. Yeah. And the question was, how do we get Tucker Carlson off the air? And is what he's is what he doing? Um, propaganda or terrorist propaganda was was the question I, i'm not going to pretend that we can answer all of that but i know that other people would have similar questions along that that line with you know mm -hmm. white replacement theory i don't again just like we've discussed crt i'm not an expert on this again and the whole like i just think it's interesting as we're talking about being informed that at at times like um, where really basic, simplistic, offensive, racist even stuff comes up, that that's when many people with privilege and power um, plead ignorance or, or say they don't understand or, can't, or didn't know or can't figure out why something was wrong, but then in the same breath can somehow say that they're experts or tell others that they're experts in some entire way of thinking, like a theory, mm -hmm. um, is difficult for me to accept. Um, like a critical race theory, white replacement theory that seems to be no disconnect of how to just dive into that right away, but we're still finding ourselves trying to tell people why insensitive comments or slurs are problematic or wrong. Um, <laughs> do, do, I mean, do you guys have thoughts? On, I mean, I spoke for myself. Um, that's not an expert, but do you guys have thoughts on the Tucker Carlson or white replacement theory? I hadn't heard of it until um, this weekend. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I had heard I had heard the language used, right? The replacement idea. Um, I think even uh, back when the last president talked about immigrants, there was some of that rhetoric being used, that yeah. dehumanizing rhetoric being used. Yeah. And the thought that that um, Americans are being replaced, right? He he was even a step further removed from uh, speaking of white Americans than Tucker Carlson is, right? Um, so I think I, I recognize that theme, but I didn't know it was called Great Repression Theory until this weekend. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm with you too, John Mark. I just found out about. I mean, I've heard the idea yeah. concept. I, I mean, for several years now, I think there are people who have felt that way but I didn't know that it kind of came to such a to be such a polarizing or popular you know 
idea through this Fox News, you know, Tucker Carlson until this weekend. But that to me is scary. It is. It's producing, you take that type of thinking and give that person a gun. Yeah. Many yeah. people are going to die. Yeah. So that's the, I, I just. These are pro-life issues as well. Um, we don't have to go down that road right now, perhaps another time, yeah. but it's yeah. not lost on me and the need for us to have to, to need to unpack the pro-life pro-choice thing for for humanity. Right. Yeah. You know, we attribute that so often to only an abortion issue. And right. again, uh, yeah. maybe another time, but um, <laughs> collect, collectively, yeah, the same and this is, you know, a bipartisan thing, but like collectively, a lot of the same people that are very, you know, pro-life, I'm doing air quotes, are the you know same ones that are the most prominent supporters of um, loose gun laws. And I think mm-hmm. there's just, there's a, just some stuff we need to unpack and there's a disconnect yeah, of what, what is going on there. Yeah. It feels like pro-life, pro-gun freedom, right? So it's like, yeah. that feels like the debate on this side of things, right? Um yeah, the, even this great replacement theory, it reminds me of Charlottesville uh, yeah. in 2017, where they were chanting, the Jews will not replace us, right? Yeah. And and look, thinking about that now in the wake of Buffalo, that yeah. um, those guys were 35 minutes away from my house. Yeah. Um, it, that is, it's terrifying to me yeah. that um, it's not... He's, it's not just in New York where this guy is, right? It's everywhere in our country. This 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 concept of being replaced. These young men who are who are being discipled in this way of thinking. It's in it's in every neighborhood, everywhere USA, right? And so uh, so are churches, right? So are schools. So are um, any space where we instruct our young men and women in the way of life, right? Uh, we should also be addressing racism in those areas and the history of racism in all those areas to combat this great replacement theory that's poisoning the minds of, of, um, of our, our teenage boys. Yeah. I feel like we could just, we just need to sit with how gross that just is a fear of being, you know, of being replaced by other people groups that don't look like mm. you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that's like the deepest meaning of racism. Yes. <laughs> and is. I don't like, it's, <laughs> it's comical to like be having like, uh, debates or like conversation about it. Yes. As if it's not like objectively a terrible thing. Like, yeah. not like a light heart. Yeah, it's not like a lighthearted little critical yeah. theory course. No. Like a liberal arts topic. It's like, yeah, it's a theory yeah. on racism and superiority that has bred paranoia and violence. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and I'm sure there are people in churches today that think along those lines and think it's not racist. Yeah, that's the, pr- yeah. the problem. Yeah. Yeah. 
it, it's it's kind of it's sad and it's shocking that people are, think along those lines. But it's the reality, just the the ignorance of of the evil that is 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 among us. Yeah. Alright, let's take one more break and then we'll wrap it up with one more thing. Okay, so again, if you need to hit pause and take some time to decompress and pick this up later, please feel free to do so. And for those of you who are going to just keep trucking along, here's the end of our conversation. Okay, Debbie. All right, it's just me and you. Uh, for listeners, for for a few, John Mark had some internet issues, and he will zoom back in, hopefully mid conversation. Um, we wanted to give adequate time, as we said at the beginning, to what happened in Dallas, as well as Orange County. Um, as predicted, we went off on a bunch of different tangents, and so hopefully we're reeling it back in right now. Um, Debbie, you've been gracious to have a lot of conversations. Um, outside this podcast um, with a lot of people. And I've learned a lot from discussing stuff with you. And I wanted to ask you about some of the things at play with what happened in Dallas, Orange County, and then the rise in anti-Asian racism um, that we've we discussed um, off and on over the last year specifically. So, um, all right, so in Dallas, what I know about that is... So, again, seven people targeted at a salon, three injured. Luckily, no deaths, um, but seven charges um, since there were seven people there. What I read is, and the, the shooter was um, is a younger um, black male. And mm-hmm. they apparently talked to his girlfriend, and she said that, and I don't know what her tone was, if she was justifying it or just saying saying it to say it, but, um, said that her boyfriend was in a car accident with an Asian person. I don't know if it was a man or woman, um, several years ago. And since then has been traumatized and essentially hated Asian people. And I think it done a string of other things, um, more minor than I think a shooting. Um, and I think had been maybe in, at least one mental evaluation, mental health evaluation. Can't remember. But um, it's also potentially connected to two other shootings. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, you know, not nothing concrete at this point, but potentially um, because of the same same car being seen at all three scenes. Yeah. I anyway, even... that's kind of bare bones stuff. So, like, I ask you that and I describe the shooter in this case because there's, for those that don't know, the rise in anti-Asian racism a a common thread over the last couple of years has been this um dynamic of it being done at the hands of black males and i would wonder if we could unpack that a little bit and specifically it's been often black males um uh, um assaulting elderly women or elderly asian women um, so I, I wanted to see 
what, because I know you have some thoughts on, on this, and I thought this would be a great setting to, to discuss this. Well, I, I can just say that I observed the rise of this happening, and I really don't have an understanding for why it's happening. And of course, it was upsetting to hear about uh, what happened in the Korean business with the Korean businesses um, in Dallas. Um, and I think there was yeah. an April second shooting, right? That was supposed to be, they they think is related to this more recent one of May ten. Right. Um, and so, um, and then you know, in New York City, there have been a number of similar situations. Um, and I, I don't, I don't actually don't have a, I, I don't even know why that's happening. I wish I knew. Mm. I don't have an answer for you, Dave, but I know that it, okay. I am upset about it. It affects me as an Asian woman. You know, um, I was in New York City a couple months ago, um, maybe it was it two or three months ago, and Paul wasn't with me, my white bodyguard, you know, my husband. Yeah. Um, Don't mess so, with Paul. Pardon me? Don't mess with Paul. Don't, Don't nobody mess, mess with Paul. Him. That's right. So I had to walk um, on the streets in the nighttime, you know, at nighttime, and I was aware of these things happening. Um, so I, for the first time, I mean, I've been to New York City and other cities before, but I, I had these feelings of always looking over my shoulder. And of course I get lost. <laughs> so that didn't make me yeah. feel any better. And nothing happened to me, but I realized that I am scared. <laughs> I'm really scared. And, but not to say like, Don Mark, you're my friend. And I have a wonderful friend, Trey, who I'm meeting for coffee on Monday. He's, you know, black American. And I'm not afraid of you guys, <laughs> you know, but I am afraid to walk in cities or urban areas in, in particular where I don't know people. And I don't, John Mark, do you have an idea about this? I have no idea why this is happening. Yeah, John Mark, you came you in, know, you senseless. came in mid question. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I asked Debbie cause we were addressing the, what was happening, what happened in Dallas, obviously Orange County and then the, the collective rise in anti-Asian racism over the last few years and just wanted to discuss, yeah. uh, you know, a common thread is often, more often than not, a lot of these reported inc incidents and cases, um, the offenders, the black male specifically, mm -hmm. a lot of the ones that have to do with elderly, with the elderly in the Asian community and mm -hmm. um, you know, specifically um Asian, Asian females, Asian women. And, mm -hmm. um, I'm similar to Debbie. I was just wondering, cause I, you know, they obviously love, people love to report that. Um, right. but I don't have a lot of informed thoughts on, on that. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any idea either. I mean, I, I attribute the, uh, general rise to anti-Asian racism to, um, racism around misinformed, understanding of how the pandemic came about, right? Um, so that's in general, but as far as yeah. young or young black, I think it's been younger black men. I don't understand. I don't know where that's coming from. I, uh, um, I don't know if 
if that is disproportionately reported, I don't know. Um, yeah, mm. I just, you know, same boat. It's a mystery. I don't, yeah, I don't get it. I don't get, I, <laughs> I feel like there should be solidarity <laughs> among yeah. my workers, you know, but I, I don't, so I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they weren't at the last black meeting we had and, and so they missed the memo. Oh that, man, they missed it. To get along. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And well, I, I will also say that just there are some tensions in, in some communities, even mm-hmm. won't say where, but in a particular workplace, I did notice that um, at a particular university that there were some, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, black faculty members who did not want to come alongside um, Asian. Um, Asians who were going through the pandemic with the rise in anti-Asian hate. Mm -hmm. And then I had other Black friends, uh, colleagues who were so angry about their their own brothers, right? Mm -hmm. Not wanting. So there, I definitely see that they're like two groups. Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand it, but... I would see... I mean, I would see the rationale of like if an experience of a group in the black community would were to view a community like the Asian community community as only beginning to speak up about racism when it's them and maybe not being in solidarity in the first place with the black community. Like that those would be like just uh, maybe guesses or assumptions at this point. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the history that we've unpacked a little bit on here, not this episode, but of, you know, I would say historically black, the black community being put at the bottom and then everyone um, who's not white and even poor in some ways being drawn by politics, but being pitted Mm-hmm. against the black community essentially with yeah. the rhetoric of it you know at least i'm not black i'm poor but i'm not black or yeah i'm not that, or at least i'm not black but i'm not white but i'm not black yeah, and, the, um, yeah. the model the model minority yeah, yeah i'd say they, some of that they, might be in play yeah yeah yeah, I, yeah you're right i think that's definitely because i mean i even for myself personally you know i think it was not until around 2016 and getting around to 2017, especially where I felt really, you know, remorseful and felt like I had to repent for not speaking up, not noticing, not understanding and not educating myself. And the thing that really hit me hard was that after the, you know, Charlottesville rally, I remember feeling so shocked in major disbelief that this could happen in this day and age. And then going to a prayer yeah. meeting and then my black American friend telling me as we're, you know, talking after the prayer meeting, um, she said, you know, I'm not surprised at all. This has yeah. always been going on. And I really felt like she's yeah. right. I just have buried my head in the sand and done the practical thing and just try to stay under the radar. So that was a turning point for me to try to catch up and try to learn more about racism and, and how it's affected the black community and the whole history you know, of slavery mm-hmm. starting from the beginning. And um, 
So maybe that is one reason, yeah, for the tension. Mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah, I think that, I think the, um, the, the myth of the model minority being pitted against black people saying why they were able to succeed, why haven't you been able to succeed? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it really is putting people who are, are fighting for the same thing against each other and saying, mm -hmm. you can't both succeed in this country, yeah. right? But I think, I don't know, I, I'd love to see some um, African-American and some Asian-American unity coming together. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not about to start an organization, but I'd love to see that happen <laughs> somewhere, somehow, you know, like yeah. we are on this screen right now. Um, uh, it makes me think back historically to um, the civil rights era and, and the war in Vietnam and how um, I think it was Malcolm X and Dr. King both saw what was happening with um, black soldiers being sent over to Vietnam um, to kill brown people and then coming back and being mistreated here. And I think yeah. it was actually uh, Muhammad Ali who was saying something, protesting that in his life. And there was, I mean, that that's a picture of solidarity uh, of, of people who are being oppressed. And yeah. Um, yeah, so it just baffles my mind that these, these, uh, these young black men would be committing violence against yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah, I love, yeah do you know them. who um, Yuri Kochiyama is? I'm not um, sure that I do. She was, I believe, a Japanese-American. Um, look her up. I, I've tried to look if there was an actual full-length biography about her, but I, don't, I haven't been able to find one. Um, but she, um, even just a Wikipedia thing would be a good summary, but she was very close to Malcolm X um, mm. during his time, and her, her story is, is very, very interesting. But mm. anyway, look, look her up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Debbie, you did have some thoughts when we talked, I think, before we hit record, too. Um, what happened in Orange County, the Taiwanese church, Taiwanese Presbyterian church, um, some cultural things at play there, the um, shooter being, uh, was he, I think, Chinese? Mainland Chinese. Mainland yeah. Chinese. Mm. And it was very, you know, it was, is it still, you know, racially motivated? Um, but, you know, people outside looking in, view that as kind of an odd like Asian person, Asian community, something both, that we don't see a lot. Yeah. They're both Chinese. In, both Chinese. I mean, they're Chinese, but they're different mm -hmm. because they're from different cultures. Um, Taiwanese, Chinese and mainland Chinese are very different in culture. They may speak the same language. Um, I have the same national language, Mandarin, but um everything is completely different. And I think that for this shooter, I think his last name is Cho. He, he I read somewhere that in 1948, he was forced to move to Taiwan. I don't know yeah, how. That's what I read. Forced. I'm not sure if it was, it was right around when the communists took over China. Maybe he mm. fled to Taiwan. I, I think that's more likely that he felt like he wanted to run away from the communist government and so fled to Taiwan, maybe that's what he did. And his experience in Taiwan was not very smooth. And maybe he felt looked down upon by mm. Taiwanese mm. and as an outsider. And all this built up tension. And I don't know what his experiences have been here in America in Chinese communities, because just because you speak the same 
you know, language doesn't mean that culturally you're the same. And, you know, politics wise, mainland China always has viewed Taiwan as China. Anybody who is Chinese from Hong Kong or Taiwan, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Chinese, even me, you know, born in America, I'm Chinese, they would consider me part of China. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah. whereas people in Taiwan feel like we're independent, we're a completely different country. Mm-hmm. And so there's always mm-hmm. that political tension, social tension, um, cultural tension. And obviously, I think this guy, um, I think I've read some reports that he he's had some social problems with, mm-hmm. I don't know, yeah. business problems too. Um, but to get to the point again, having a gun, it makes it easy. Yeah. Right? Put your anger out and just his hate toward Taiwan, these people, and just, you know, aim the gun and shoot people. So um, mm. I can say that I've experienced different Chinese communities growing up. I think that in my, as a, as a child, I could see that the Taiwan group is, is very close-knit. The Cantonese speakers from Hong Kong would be very close-knit. And then mainland Chinese, culturally, they fit together better. The beautiful thing is that within the church setting, you can see that people are um, one in Christ. And mm. there is this intention to love one another. And you see... Cantonese speakers, Mandarin speakers from China and Taiwan worshiping God together. Wow. So that's the beauty of it. Um, that's that. So I'm not, I'm saying that I lived in, I observed both, both settings mm-hmm. within the church and outside of the church. Mm-hmm. So right. Jesus is our hope, man. <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Appreciate yeah. you sharing that, Debbie. Oh, sorry. I just said appreciate you sharing all that. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I do. I have another example to just explain that Asians are not all the same. Um, what? Ha! <laughs> I was actually in San Francisco like a month ago, and I was going through Japantown with a friend. She's from mainland Chinese. I'm American-born Chinese, and uh-huh. we're great friends. And we were going shopping. We walk into this gift shop and the owner is um, a Cantonese speaker, right? <laughs> so, and uh, my friend is wanting to um, buy a little present for her friend. And um, she, you know, I guess there's some cultural things that she may not understand because she's been here for, you know, just not even a decade, maybe a few years. And mm-hmm. she thought like I always get um I can always use change to pay for my groceries because I she didn't like to carry around coins right so in this store she she told the you know the cashier the owner like um can I pay for this part with my credit card as well as my coins because I don't want to carry my coins around I'm like oh no because <laughs> no, usually in a small gift shop they're not necessarily prepared to do that but she wanted right. to buy right yeah and this shop owner got really really angry at her I thought overly angry but I think it's because I I don't know there's just a tone of voice you can sense that there was a little bit of looking down on my friend 
Who is she's Japanese? Because no, she was from. She, you were in J- Japantown. We were in Japantown, right? Okay. She happened to be a Ch- Hong Kong Chinese. Okay. Uh, Cantonese speaker, okay. and my friend is oh, okay. Mandarin from mainland, and mm-hmm. I sense. I just knew, yeah, Thank you can sense it that there's this like just disdain for my friend, yeah. right? It's mm-hmm. like in, in mockery, like uh, it's like your coins are just like pennies. Why don't you just give it to the poor or something like that? I can't, I can't you know, mm-hmm. why do you want to pay with it? Just pay with your credit card, right? And yeah. then my friend tried to explain, it's like, oh, it's just a little heavy. So why can't I, why can't you just take it? Anyways, it's went on for a while and then. Finally, she said, no, I can't do this. Where are you from? <laughs> no. Like, she wanted to know where my friend was from, right? Wow. And my, my friend said, you know, she knew what that question was, but she said, I'm from San Mateo. <laughs> so, like, she had just moved there for several months. She wasn't going to give up, divulge that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so, again, I just, this, I don't know. That's just. Yeah. Yeah, that's an example. example. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't think that if if it were a Cantonese speaker that she would have been treated that way. Yes. I don't know how to explain it. It's mm-hmm. you when, yeah. Yeah, it, it shows. It shows that um, ethnocentrism is a thing that happens everywhere. Right? Exactly. That that um, America is not unique in in that we we fight with racism, but. Right. I mean, I think we have, we put our American flavor on it, right? Um, But yeah, it's similar in China. Like there's a a whole culture that uh, us as outsiders, us Americans as outsiders, we don't understand the nuances that's going there. So something that looks like, oh, it's, you know, black on black crime, right? Not in this case, but you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, but no, there's a, there's a cultural thing that is ethnocentrism that's going on there. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, Absolutely. All right. What should, before we go, um, this has been great. What should um, our good listeners take away from our conversation just now? Well, I think we need to encourage each other not to become, stay in the numb place. It's okay to feel that way. We have human feelings and, Hmm. but we need to help each other to get out of the numbness Hmm and get out of our angry stage as well and to do something constructive. Mm-hmm. And we need to help each other to continue to have hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, I think Christians have to be politically aware um, because the laws, you know, affect um, or the justice um, the way yeah. justice is administered affects how, you know, just affects discrimination and practices or unfair, giving, un, giving unfair advantage to the dominant culture. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, I think that, um, but most of all, I really feel like, I'm I'm going to get on my hands and knees and pray because mm-hmm. I think this is a this is a God sized problem. Mm-hmm. It, um, it has to be one on many different fronts. It's not just a systemic part. It has to be. We do need to pray for people's soul, the soul of America, their hearts, mm-hmm. 
we need to pray that Americans will, I'm talking about every individual in America will get out of their ethnocentric lives mm-hmm. and see yeah. that other cultures are and ethnicities have richness that they're missing out on. And I think that it really has to start from, you know, day one at home and in in schools, you know, educating the richness of different people groups. And um, because it's hard to start here at this level, like this weekend, it's really hard, right? We both think it's really hard. Yeah. (laughs) We all think. It's, yeah, that's yeah. very well said. I agree with that's all very that. Very well said. Yeah, I I agree with all that. I I think um, yeah, I like how you said get out of get out of your anger. Anger is is an emotion. Emotions are real and valid, and we should feel angry when people's lives are taken. But but use it right. Be angry and and use it to to act. Use it to to give power to your voice. Um, where you speak on behalf of people whose lives aren't being valued, right? So yeah. Um, yeah. say something when you have a chance, yeah. I think Perfect. it's just simple, it, simple as complicated as that, right? Say something <laughs> yeah. when you have yeah. a chance, yeah. What about you, David? What do you think? Yeah, you guys are right on. I almost have, almost have nothing to add, but I'll add what our good friend uh, Debbie said on um, Sunday. I don't have permission to use use their names. I'll just say our friend who said, um, you know, pray. Absolutely. Like almost, you know, pray without ceasing, never say that prayer is not the answer, but also use your power privilege to also take action. And, you know, this person also charged everyone to not become like you guys have said already desensitized to what's going on. Um, I think that's very, very important as easy as it is probably to become desensitized. Um, I said we can't become desensitized to doing the right thing and caring about what's right. So that's what I would hope people are taking away from this. We certainly didn't answer or solve all of these issues that we've discussed, but I hope that we've added some entryway into how to empathize and kind of all of us move forward together. And I think like you guys have just brought up, it's, prioritizing humanity and dignity. I say that word all the time because I think it's the crux of so much of all of this. We can unpack theories and all these layers of all this stuff, but it just, it always comes back to those basic words, like, like you said, John Mark. So, um, that was great. Great, great. Um, all right. Thank you guys so much for doing this listeners. Thank you as always, maybe especially even on this episode, if you've gotten all the way to the end, for um, spending some time with us and listening in to this conversation. Um, no music this time. We're just going to uh, sign off, and we will see you all next time. Thank you, guys.